Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of John, chapter 14. John, chapter 14. Um, as we're getting ready for um, this passage of Scripture and this sermon and what we're going to draw out of it today, this week I was drawn to thinking about vacations, travel. When I was a kid, I grew up in a family that didn't do extravagant vacations. We didn't go a long way. I never flew in a plane. This is the most uh, church kid uh, story I can tell. I never flew in a plane until I was the youth representative on a music search committee at my church. It's the first time I ever flew on a plane. My family, my family, my mom and dad and I, my brother, we still, none of us have flown on a plane together, right? And so we weren't adventurous like that. Our vacations oftentimes were Weekend series at the St. Louis Cardinals games, which was awesome, but not really extravagant. We didn't go to Disney World. We went to Magic City in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Anybody ever been there? That's what I thought. All right, here we go. Did I see a hand over here? So we went to Hot Springs, Arkansas. That was the biggest trip we ever took, right? Magic City, which was kind of uh, Cousins' um, Little brother of Branson, Branson's little brother before Branson was Branson. Nobody went to Branson at that time either, right? And so that was it. That was for us. And one of the things that is kind of crazy to me is as I've grown older, I've gotten to go to some amazing places. Um, places that when I was a kid, I thought, boy, that'd be cool to go to at times. And I've gotten to be there. Uh, I remember probably my favorite place of all time to view, see, um, was I was on a trip to Brazil. And Brazil is a beautiful country. It's obviously different. They're a loving culture, loving community. And uh, I remember specifically that we had a day off. Uh, it was a trip when we had had to book an extra day late of uh, flights because of cost and because of logistics. And so we had a day off. And the guy that leads our trip is a guy named Gary Taylor. And Gary still leads trips. He's leading the trip this summer that our group, that we have a group going to um, at the end of June. Uh, And so Gary came to me and he knew I played golf a little bit. He played golf and he said, hey, we've got a day off tomorrow. If you'll go, I'll pay for you to play golf. And yes, absolutely, right? What I didn't realize is that we were staying where we say in Porto Seguro, um, just a, a little bit away from there, not where we work. We work in some deeply impoverished areas, but a little bit away from that is Brazil's Club Med and apparently a course that they designed after Pebble Beach. And that's where we played. Only time I ever played in my life, I had a caddy on the back. I couldn't speak his language. He didn't realize how terrible I was, so it wasn't a great relationship. He'd hand me a club, and I was like, I don't think that's going to work. I need couple, you know, bigger, bigger, more, more. And uh, he, we tried to communicate. I played absolutely beautiful course looking out over the ocean. And there's a hole on the back nine of that course. I think it was 13 or 14, somewhere around there. That was a par three and it was an elevated tee and you were hitting it onto a cliff on the Pacific, I mean, on the Atlantic Ocean. And I remember standing on that tee in what is undoubtedly one of the most beautiful places I have ever been. And I had the same thought that I have on every trip that I've ever been on in my life. I'm ready to go home. Every trip that I've ever taken, at some point, I'm like, it's time to go home. 
I want to be where I know where the Q-tips are. Right? I want to be at my home. Let me tell you something. My home, it's beautiful, it's lovely, I am thankful to God for it. It is not one of the most spectacular places on the face of the earth. But it's home. Anybody feel me there? Anybody been there, right? You go to great places all over the world, and at some point you're like, I just need to go home. Today, as we look at John chapter 14, it's a story of Jesus telling his disciples that it's time for him to go home and about how they're going to come along with him. In fact, the last point we'll make today, and we'll give you the last point, and then we're going to take a minute to get there. The last point that we're going to make today in this passage that we're going to pull out for us is that Jesus is the way home. Now, we're going to take a minute to walk through the passage to get there, but I want you to know that's where we're going. John chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I'm going. And Lord, Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. John 14 is in an interesting place in the, in the book of John. The book of John is divided really in half. You have the first few chapters actually ending around the time that Noah preached on last week with Lazarus' resurrection. That's one of the last stories that's told in the first part of the book of John. And the first half of John focuses on the ministry of Jesus. And the second half of the book of John, the entire second half, is about the last week of Jesus' life. And in fact, once you hit the chapter before this, all the way for the next few chapters, you are in the midst of not only the last week of Jesus' life, but the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And as we get to this moment, the first thing he says in chapter 14, verse 1, to the apostles is, quit worrying, quit being troubled, stop being troubled. And the question becomes, what's happening in the midst of them to make them troubled? Well, it's obvious that it's near the end of Jesus' life, but they haven't quite grasped all that that means. And what has happened just before this in chapter 13 is three kind of moments that made them begin to question everything about their lives. First of all, Jesus tells of a betrayal from one of them, and they say, who is it or who's it going to be? And in fact, Peter says, Jesus, who is it? And Jesus kind of leans over to him and says, it's the one I dip my cup, and they say it's Judas, but it says the rest of the disciples don't understand what's going on at this moment. But there's that first declaration, by the way, pretty soon, one of you is going to turn on me and betray me and will give me over to the authorities. The second thing that Jesus says in the midst of that, and it's time for me to leave, it's time for me to go. It's time for me to be gone. And then the third thing is he tells Peter, who says, well, I'm going to go wherever you are. I would never leave you. He says, Peter, you're going to deny me and deny that you even know me. And so the disciples' world gets rocked in just a few verses of Scripture. Who's going to betray him? Where's he going? 
Peter is going to portray it. Peter's going to walk away. Peter's going to deny him. What in the world is going to happen here? What you have to understand from the perspective of the disciples, they had literally given up everything they had for him. Jobs, family, succession plans. And that day and time, if your dad was a farmer, guess what you were going to be? If your dad was a fisherman, you were going to be a... That's what it was. And so they had left their father's work to come to follow Jesus. And as a result, they didn't have a future without him. They'd risk their reputations. And as Jesus begins to talk about all of this is about to happen, they're supposed to be sharing one of the holiest, one of the best moments of the year in the Passover. And Jesus is like, by the way, one of you is going to betray me. I'm about to leave. Yes, and even Peter, you're going to deny me. What we also have to understand, kind of bubbling under the surface here, is not only are the disciples troubled, but what John has told us twice just before this, that Jesus is also troubled. It's the same word. It comes in chapter 12, 27, it comes in chapter 13, 21. In fact, even in the passage Noah read last week in chapter 11, when it talks about that he's troubled by what he sees, he's troubled by the news, there is this understanding that Jesus is in turmoil and the other two speak specifically about what is about to happen. Now, what I think is interesting about this particular passage of Scripture is that Jesus has literally the weight and the sin of the world bearing down upon him, coming upon him in that moment. And instead of getting upset or frustrated at the disciples, kind of saying, what do you mean? you're troubled. I'm about to be the one that's going to be on the cross. I'm about to be the one that's going to be beaten beyond recognition. I'm the one that's going to die. Why are you troubled? What is interesting to me in this moment is the one who is troubled is comforting the troubled. And he says to them, stop worrying. He says, don't worry about this. He goes, where where I'm going is for your good. Where I'm going is to blaze a trail. Where I'm going, I'm going to get ready for you. And you know where that is. And I love the honesty of Thomas. I do hate that Thomas, um, if I was Thomas, I would like, can I get a little better PR? It seems like every time I'm there, it's doubting something, you know, show me the, the nails and here. He just says what most of us would think. Like, I, I, we don't have a clue what you're talking about, Jesus. Are you talking riddles and parables? Like, what, what do you mean we know where you're going? I, you haven't told us a place. You're just saying, I'm going. Like, where? And, and we don't even know where you're going. What are you doing? Where are you? How do we get there? Here's the real question at the bottom of what Thomas is asking is this. Where are you taking us? What is this journey? What, what is this about, Jesus? We left everything we know for you, and now you're telling us you're gone? It's in that moment that Jesus utters one of the most profound and important declarations of who he is. He says, Thomas, all you need to know is that I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He is the way. He's blazing a trail for us. 
The point of this passage is not so much the result. The point of this passage is the process and that Jesus is the one that is doing it. He is the one that is bridging the chasm that we sang about in just a few minutes ago. What a chasm existed between us and God. Jesus says, I am the one that is bridging the way, that is leading that place, that is showing you how I'm going to take care of the chasm that is between us. He is the truth. He tells them in this passage, He is the revelation of God to their lives, that He has brought God to them, that He has revealed God to them. That he is the absolute truth, the ultimate truth, the declaration of truth. That he is one with the Father and the Father is one with him. That they are demonstrating through Jesus' life, through what is coming in his death and resurrection, their love and their holiness and their justice is happening in that moment. And he is the life. He is the fullest satisfaction of who we are to be. He is the exemplary example for us. And he is the provider of what we need to sustain us in the reality of not only our physicality, but our spirit as well. He is the one blazing the trail, demonstrating the truth of who God is and showing us what life can be. Thomas Akempis wrote several years ago about this passage. And I want you to see this quote. And I want to tell you, he, he, didn't, he didn't write in modern times. And so there are some vowels and some other stuff. No emojis in his writing. All right. And so you just got to stick with me a little bit here as we read through some of this. He says, what Jesus is saying is, follow thou me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. And the way which thou must follow, the truth thou must believe, and the life for which thou must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, life true, life blessed, life uncreated. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And what he's just explained to the apostles gathered in that room for their last meal together in this most extended teaching area that Jesus does uninterrupted in the Gospels. This isn't public, it's to his followers. We're gonna, next week, the last I am statement we're going to cover is still in this upper room discourse. What he's explained to them is that this is the way I must go in order to secure for you what needs to be secured. So today I want to look at three things that Jesus is the way to. And the first thing we see from this passage and from understanding what is being implied here is that Jesus is the way to healing. There's this part at the end that that bothers some people, and we're going to talk about it a little more in depth in a moment. But in verse 6 it says, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. I just want to break down that particular part of this because when I talk about healing here, I'm not talking about physical healing, although Jesus is the great physician and can do that. I'm not talking about um, our emotions being healed, although as a part of what Jesus does, that can be a part of what he does, is a part of what he does. What I'm talking about here is the spiritual death that we have died because of the sin in our lives that he is the ultimate healer of that 
And the first thing to understand that, that we need to do, is we need to understand the dire situation, the desperate situation, the lack of hope situation in which we find ourselves. And it says that immediately after he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, because he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father. Now, we talk a lot over the last 15 plus years in this room about the fact that when the Bible says all that all means, can you guess what no one means? No one means not, not an exception. Like, I know that's for other people, but for me, or well, what about, what about, well, what about Billy Graham or Mother Teresa? No one. No one. We are a hopeless case. From the moment that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the rest of humanity has chosen to walk away and rebel against him as well. And because of our rebellion, we are destined to be eternally separated from him. So last week... um, while Noah was preaching, I mentioned last week that I went downstairs. And uh, we, we did, it was on Jesus' baptism. That's what they were learning last week. And so it was a great time for me to have a Q&A with them about baptism and what that means. And by the way, we're going to do baptism on Easter Sunday morning. And so if you're here and that's a part of what you need to do, we'll talk about more at the end in following Jesus. You can talk with me after we can set up something. But Easter Sunday morning in two weeks, we're going to do baptism. And we were having conversations about baptism. And a couple wanted to ask questions that were outside of baptism. And so I told them afterwards, we can do, uh, you can ask me whatever you want to. Mistake. <laughs> right? Fortunately, I looked at my watch and I realized I've only got time for a couple of questions. First question. Young man raises his hand, says to me, you know, when the Bible, when it talks about Cain and Abel and one brother killing another brother, like, okay, tracking, tracking, he says it mentions something about their wife. Where did the wife come from? And if you didn't catch along there, God created Adam and Eve, and then they had, apparently in Scripture, it just tells about sons. That's kind of a touchy situation to get into with the kids, first through fifth grade. And so we navigated around that, worked through that as best I could, thought, okay, we got that covered. Good, that one's fine. Next question. Hand raised, young man, says, first lesson, don't ever call on young men when you say, ask me anything. Young man asked me, he's third, fourth grade or somewhere around there, raises his hand and says, God says we're supposed to love everybody, right? And he says that we're supposed to love our enemies. Yeah. Not sure where this is going. Maybe it's a brother. Maybe it's a friend. Does that mean we're supposed to love Satan? Oh, that's where we're going to go with this. Oh, okay. I got you. Um, and Krista just looks at me literally and goes, so glad you are here. And I was like, I don't know what that means, and I will never be back again. But we got into an in-depth discussion. Somehow Job was woven into that about the relationship between God and Satan at this point. And ultimately, we talked about the fact that Satan symbolizes for us that rebellion against God means you are no longer allowed to dwell with him. 
that you have been cast off. And that's the place that we find ourselves. No one comes to the Father. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Physical, yes, we're going to die because of that. No matter how long science can try to keep us alive, we're going to die. I don't know whether you know this or not, but years ago there was this kind of assumption that the life expectancy in our country in particular was just going to increase year after year after year after year. Recent studies show that that's actually starting to reverse trend some. We're going to die. Everybody in this room is going to die. The question is not if, but when, unless the Lord comes back. And if the Lord were to come back before I finish this sermon, praise be to God. And to die in our sin means to die not only physically, but eternally. No one comes to the Father. And then you have one of the most beautiful words in the, in the original text. But or except through me. In reality, Jesus is the way to healing. Really should be Jesus is the only way to healing. Because what Jesus is saying is because of what he is about to do and the cross and paying for our sins and the resurrection from the dead, that because of what he is about to do to pay for us and to pay for our sins, that there is no other way to get to the Father except through the payment that he is going to make for our sins and the victory that he is going to bring in the resurrection on what we celebrate Easter Sunday morning. And as a result, that is the way that we can have a relationship with God. He can be healed in our spiritual nature is because of the one who is paving the way for us. I know some of you say, Pastor, you still believe that exclusivity of Christ? Christ is the only way. Jesus is the only answer. And I would say to you, as backwards as it may sound in a modern culture that we live in, I absolutely believe it. Almost every other religion and every other major religion has the premise that God has set a rule of standards and it really is about whether you break them or not and how much you break them and how much good you do to outweigh your bad and hopefully you do enough at the end that you can get to the point where God says, all right, I'll let you in. But here's what I know from Scripture. Our God is a holy God, a mighty, holy, jealous God and He cannot allow into His presence anything that is unholy or it tarnishes the holiness of His place. And wherever we are going, at the end of this when we'll talk about in just a few moments whatever that is will be a place of holiness and purity and God will not allow us into that place unless we have been made clean through Jesus Christ he is the way to healing the second thing that we know from this passage of scripture not only is the way to healing but Jesus is the way to help now this is fleshed out a little bit more in not only this chapter, but particularly John chapter 16. But in this chapter, he talks about the fact that he has to go away. He has to, to leave. He has to pursue this path of blazing the trail for us. Because without doing that, he cannot send the comforter to our side, the advocate for us. In fact, over in John chapter 16, he says it um, this way. 
Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away. By the way, that's John 16, not 14. It's for your benefit that I go away. They're like, what do you mean it's for our benefit? That can't be right. He says, because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. The counselor there, the Greek word for that is paraclete. Nobody, that's not going to change your life. What it means is one who advocates for you, who stands in the gap for you, one who speaks for you, one who helps. What Jesus is demonstrating here is, as I go, I'm going to be taking care of the sins of your past. I'm going to be sending someone to help you live along the way. That unless I go prepare the way, unless I die, unless I'm resurrected, I can't send the helper to come and to guide you. Now, in John chapter 16, it'll tell us that he comes to convict us of sins, yes. That he comes to guide us into understanding of righteousness, yes. That he is a conscious, if you will, for us, a a better one, a a redeemed one that is not from within, but from without, and that we can trust and ask him to show us. But it also tells us that the Holy Spirit comes, the, the helper, the comforter comes to give us life and give it abundantly in order to lead us and guide us and indwell us and flow out of us the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. He is the way to help. So if you're here today and you're going through a really difficult time, and maybe you're a follower of Jesus, or maybe you haven't even taken that step, I can tell you this, that while the situation in your life might not be removed completely, the difficulty might not be taken away immediately, I can tell you this without a doubt, that with Christ and with the Holy Spirit guiding us through, it is bearable to be in the midst of those circumstances because of the helper that we have from the Lord. And then this is the last. I told you this is the last point. This is it. Jesus is the way home. This passage gets preached a lot at funerals. And that's because of verse 3, actually verse 2 and verse 3. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Now, let me just say that um, I've been guilty of this, and I've heard sermons guilty of this, that sometimes we get so caught up on what the rooms and the house and the mansion on a hill is all about that we miss the point of this passage. Here's what I can tell you Jesus is not doing at this moment. He is not wallpapering your heavenly mansion. Okay? He's not working in shiplap right now. Okay, although he was a carpenter as an earthly trade. The point of this passage is not, let me imagine what my home will look like in glory. And people get caught up on, well, I thought, oh, you know, King James says mansion. This is just a room. I'd rather have a mansion than a room. Let me just tell you this. You're not going to be disappointed with whatever you got. And the point of this passage is not that he is going up there to do home renovation projects. The point of this passage is is that he is blazing the trail to make it possible for us to spend eternity with him. And that whatever we have, we will be with him. That's the key. 
And what he's trying to do for these apostles in this room that are troubled at the things that he has just said, he wants to shift their focus from here and now to our heavenly home, to our ultimate home, to the place that we were built to belong in and to live in forever and ever. Amen. The place from which we will not say, I am ready to go home because we will be there. One of my favorite lines of an old uh, Southern Gospel song, one of my favorite lines of any of those is that first line from Beulah Land. Right? I'm kind of homesick for a country to which I've never been before. I'm longing for something that I've never even seen, but that is my home. And what he wants them to understand in the midst of this, whatever is about to happen over the next 24, 48, 72 hours, whatever is about to happen on Friday is going to be superseded by Sunday. But understand that this is not our home. This physical location where you live, your home, whatever your street address is, is not your home. Your home is in the place where God has prepared for his people to go and dwell with him for eternity and the main reason that we are always a little dissatisfied the reason we were always a little frustrated the main reason we can never quite get a grip on whatever it is on this earth is because this is not where we ultimately are supposed to be and the desires in our heart the wants in our lives the things that just can't get fulfilled are things that god has set aside to make us long for our heavenly place we are longing for eternity it says in the scriptures that god has put eternity in the hearts of men c.s lewis says it this way in mere christianity creatures are not born with desire unless satisfaction for those desires exist a baby feels hunger well there is such a thing as food a duckling wants to swim well there is such a thing as water man feels sexual desire well there is such a thing as sex if i find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And if none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. What Jesus is doing for the disciples in this moment is like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am telling you that there is a grander, bigger plan and that this is not your place of eternal dwelling. This is not your home, but I am going to get a place for you. I'm going to secure it through my death. I'm going to secure it through my resurrection. I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you and you're going to be with me and it's going to be forever and ever glorious. And what he doesn't want them to do is to get so focused on the here and now that they ruin their appetite for the then and there. Sometimes at our house, in our family, we have nights set aside when Luke's not playing pickup basketball and the girls don't have cheer activities or we don't have something at church. And those rare nights when we have a night, then we're going to do something and we'll talk about, hey, we're either going to eat something good at the house or we're going to go out to eat. Okay, we're going to have a big meal. Right. And occasionally in those days, I'll get off work and I'll drive home at 415 and I'll walk in the house and Ava's got a bowl of Cheeto puffs. She's just snacking away on. 
Ava's got, I mean, Maddie's got a bowl of ice cream. She's just eating away. And Luke's got a party pizza. And you know what those party pizzas are? Those square pizzas? Because he eats those as single servings. Um, in the, in the toaster oven. And it's like 4.30 and we're going to eat at 5.30 or 6 o'clock. And my first thought is, not, maybe it should be, wow, look at these resourceful kids. So happy they're able to get that stuff together. What's my first thought? You're going to ruin supper. I can hear my mom saying it through my mouth as I say it. Right? Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? But that's my thought. Like, you're eating junk food. We're going to have a good meal tonight. What are you doing? Right? But no matter what you think of Cheeto Puffs, they're junk food, all right? Amazing inventions, gloriously tasty, but junk food, all right? I wonder how many times the Lord looks at us and says, would you quit snacking on unhealthy stuff? And what Jesus is doing here is he says, I don't want you to get stuffed on the unhealthy things of this world. What am I talking about? Really, just three, there are many more, but three things I thought about. Unhealthy attachments that we get to in our lives, unhealthy emotions and unhealthy attentions. We get attached to things here and now. Cars. Houses, jobs, careers. We get attached to those things and they are the unhealthy snacks that weakens our appetite for the things of God. I'm not saying in and of themselves any of those are bad necessarily. What I mean is when they take our attention and our appetite and they become things that we value above what they should be valued, they detract from us being able to enjoy the things of God. Unhealthy emotions, we all have emotions. We can't control emotions always. But sometimes we forget that we have a God that is in complete control. When we allow our frustration and our anger and our worry to take over our lives and it prevents us from being able to enjoy the things of God. Now, hear me very clearly. I'm not talking here about the very real thing that sometimes happens or is, exists in our culture of clinical depression or medical issues there. But if you look at all the studies out there, either those kind of emotions have risen at an astronomical rate or people are way more unsatisfied than they used to be. An unhealthy attentions. I saw a quote on Twitter this morning from an early service from a pastor that I know, a guy named Nathan Joyce, who's in Paducah, Kentucky. He said this morning in his sermon, there's never been a time in history when more words and noises are competing to dominate our lives. And many of us in this room are snacking on the unhealthy things of this earth, and it is ruining our appetite for the things of God had a conversation this week with another pastor. We were talking about the Asbury Revival. And I told that pastor, I said, listen, one of the things when it was going on that I said to our church is, I hope it is real. I pray that it is real. And I pray that it does not pass me by. And this other pastor looked at me and he said, he said, the fear I have for the people in our churches is that they're so comfortable with what they have here, they're afraid that if God really shows up, it'll mess up their life. 
And they are unwilling for God to move in a way that would disrupt what they already have. And can I tell you something? If God shows up in your life, it will mess things up. The question that I have is how many of us in this room are so consumed with the unhealthy snacks of this world that we aren't prepared for God to mess that up to give us the real thing. Now, I'm not, I'm not in any way about to say that we can manipulate God. I don't believe that. God moves when God wants to move where God wants to move. But I know a prerequisite for God moving in the lives of the people that call him their God is that they have to be willing to let their lives get messed up to do whatever he says. There's no one in Scripture that God goes to and says, I'm about to do a major work in your life. By the way, all your life is good. Everything's great. We're just going to add on top of that. Every single one of them, he disrupts what they're doing in order to move them into a new place. And here's what I want to tell you. If you do not want your life disrupted, you are not ready for God to move. in your life or in this church, if we are not ready for our lives to get disrupted, if we're just trying to get back to a comfortable place or to a place that we used to be or to a place that's a little more stable, if that's our desire as a church, God's not going to move. Because when God moves, it messes stuff up. And I long for home. I'm at a place in my life when I sometimes look around and I'm like, I'm ready to go home. And I don't mean 103 Rose Garden Lane. I mean eternity with God. Because here's the deal in this whole passage. The most important thing in this passage about what Jesus says is not what he's building for us. It says that I will come and I will take you so that you can be where I am. You see, what makes home for me here, what makes it a home for me while I like being there is because it's a safe and comfortable place. But more than that, it's the people that are be here, that are there. When I was standing in that place, another time that I felt it in Brazil, of all places, I remember distinctly standing at the Jesus Redeemer statue in Brazil. One of those places in the world people want to travel to. I remember distinctly standing there looking at that and thinking, man, I am ready to get home. And a primary reason for that is the people that are there. What makes home home for me is Susan. It's Eli and Luke. It's Maddie and Ava. That's what makes home home. It's the people that are there. It's the safety that I have in that place. And it's where I belong. Well, here's the thing about heaven. That's what makes heaven heaven. It is safe. It is comfortable. It is luxurious. But Jesus is there. And it is where I belong. Jonathan Edwards, another guy that didn't write with emojis, by the way, said this. He said, the redeemed have all of their objective good in God. God himself is the great good which they are brought to the possession and enjoyment of our redemption. He is the highest good and the sum of all that good which Christ purchased. 
God is the inheritance of the saints. He is the portion of their souls. God is the wealth, their wealth and treasure, their food, their life, their dwelling place, their ornament and diadem, their everlasting honor and glory. They have none in heaven but God. He is the great good which they redeemed or received to at death and which they are to rise to at the end of the world. The Lord God, He is the light of the heavenly Jerusalem. He is the river of the water of life that runs and the tree of life that grows in the midst of the paradise of God. The glorious excellencies and beauty of God will be what will forever entertain the minds of the saints and the love of God will be their everlasting feast. They redeemed will indeed enjoy other things. They will enjoy the angels. They will enjoy one another. But that which they shall enjoy in the angels or each other or in anything else whatsoever that will yield them delight and happiness will be what will be seen of God in them. He is our treasure, and our hope. Jesus is the way home. What He did in providing us, the exception clause of Jesus in providing us a way to get home. See, here's the deal about that. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus what we fail to recognize oftentimes when we talk about the exclusivity of Christ is that the exclusivity of Christ is not a restriction that condemns. It is a lifeline that saves. That there is no hope without Him. And God didn't have to provide a way, but He did. So what do we do in the midst of all of that? Well, if He has blazed the trail for us, then we follow the trailblazer. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off all that entangles us in the sin that so easily entraps us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. How? How do we do that? We keep our eyes on Jesus. And this is another way to say the way the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We follow Jesus. I don't know where you are today, and I don't know what God is doing in your heart. Maybe you're here and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior before. But you've never done that. Today can be that day. Today can be the moment when you give your life completely to Jesus. Just say, I know that without you I am hopeless. I know there is no way. I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you rose again on the third day. And I am asking you to save me. In a moment, we're going to have a time of response. And if you think that's who you are today, if you think it's time for that, then I'm going to ask you to come forward and to talk with me. Or if you say, I don't know that I'm ready to come forward, if you want to find me in the back, I would love to have a conversation with you after the service. Maybe you're here today and you've, you've asked Jesus to save you, but you've never been baptized. And that is a step of obedience and You'd like to have more information about that. We can talk about that or talk about being baptized in a couple of weeks. I'd love to have that conversation. My guess is most of us in this room have something in our lives that is an unhealthy snack of this world that we have been devouring and it has dampened our appetite for the things of God.
And perhaps this morning you just need to come pray. You need to come talk. No, or I'll be down here. We can have a conversation. But you just need to say to the Lord, I'm ready to eat the real thing. I'm going to pray. Band's going to come and lead us. And if you need to respond, I'm going to ask you to respond. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do pray this morning that your will would be done in this place as it is in heaven. Lord, I confess that there are times and things in my life that I am attached to, that I desire, that keep me from longing for, that keep me from desiring the things of you. Lord, I pray this morning that for those in this room that are trapped by that or have something that is preventing them from letting God truly move in their lives, Lord, that they would be willing just to give it up. Lord, we we desire our heavenly home. We sing about it. We, we long for it. But Lord, help us in the meantime to live in a way that glorifies you and that brings your kingdom to this earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, help us, Lord, as we navigate this world on the way to home to fix our eyes on you in the midst of it. Lord, if there's anyone here today that has not accepted you as their Savior, Lord, I pray that you would make them uncomfortable in this moment. That you wouldn't allow them to know their need for you, that they would recognize that and they'd be willing to say yes. More than anything, Lord, we just pray that your name will be the name that is lifted high in this place. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.